Friday, Friday morning actually, nearly afternoon, uh, episode number 39 of From the Resort Podcast, your host Tim Wilshire. another episode, uh, obviously talking to a candidate running for the Arrowtown Kawarau uh, election. Uh, so today I've got uh, Daniel Jubniak, uh, he's an expert in design, moments of delight. Uh, welcome along to the podcast, Daniel. Uh, thank you, Tim, for having me. No worries. So, where we like to start this podcast uh, is basically let us know where you where were you born and uh, what was life sort of like growing up in your early years. I was born in the late seventies in Croatia in a little town about a half an hour train ride east of Zagreb, and I was born into two different families. My dad's family is originally from Bosnia. So very old fashioned. <laughs> they only got running water and electricity when they moved to Croatia in 1974. And my mother's family have been in that region for generations beforehand. Um, and I grew up there until I was 10. And then we moved to South Africa in 1990. So just before the war in Croatia and sort of 18 months before apartheid switched. <laughs> so can you remember what that was like, sort of moving to South Africa? Sort of. Um, for me, I've always had a sense of adventure, like an adventurous spirit. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like Africa. You read all these things as a kid of like animals and jungle and like savannah and um, lions on the prairie. And so it was just, for me, it was very exciting. And I could feel a lot of hesitation in my family around me. So I just did the thing of let's look forward to this next adventure because mm. look back on it my parents made a super tough decision to leave everything they knew all their friends all their support network to offer a brighter future potentially a brighter future for their kids mm-hmm. and it's when you become a parent later you start understanding just what that might have taken <laughs> yeah no. it's yeah. definitely you hear some stories where you know you, you, that, that's very uh, big decisions that you know you make your kids um, you know growing up and yeah. you decide to go from what you know to somewhere completely yeah. new so yeah it, it helped because my dad's brother the youngest one my uncle was already there and a couple of the families that had actually been with our family or near neighbors in Bosnia and also near neighbors in Croatia were also there was one or two down there already so it wasn't purely nothing Mm. And there was a yeah. small but a tight-knit Croatian community in... South Africa. Yeah, yeah. In, near Joburg, where we lived. So you lived at Joburg? Um, about an hour out towards um, Susselberg, so like a little mm. town called Funderbell Park. And it basically, it had this massive steel mill. Mm. And then this town around it to like support the steel mill. <laughs> yep. It's kind of 5,000 people work at the steel mill. Mm. And then the rest of the town is just literally all about servicing those people right okay um, well but it was for us as a kid between 10 and 13 it was very idyllic because you had this little town we were near a river we could walk to school as much as South Africa is known to be have crazy places we did have a little paradise where we were that's good yeah yeah so I didn't I mean I knew of things we just didn't have direct exposure unless mm. we went to Joburg mm. <laughs> or we heard stories of people driving from Joburg and just going through horrendous things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
So a few, were you just there for a few years? Uh, actually, exactly three days. We got there 3rd of June and we left 3rd of June. It was quite a fun thing. Mm. Um, and we had, before we moved to Croatia, we tried to move to, sorry, before we moved to South Africa, we tried to move to Australia. Yep. But it was really difficult in the late 80s to actually get in. Okay. And then um, a couple of friends, again, had figured out how to get to New Zealand. So we, like when I heard the word New Zealand, I just remembered I'd read this book called um, Wai Tapu, and it was about the two islands joining together and being separated. And it just struck a chord in me. So when my parents started talking to friends about New Zealand, I was like obsessed. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we have to go there. Like, I don't know why, but we have to go there. So whatever translation they needed doing, I did that work. The meetings we had with lawyers and immigration people just, just help. Because <laughs> like, I had mastered most of the language the earliest in my family my sister's spectacularly gifted physically she was an athlete and mm. a bunch of things um my dad is really hard working my mum is super loving but they they didn't have the mindset of taking new ideas on board mm. like in a yeah mm. so but basically moved yeah. to uh, new zealand as a teenager then yeah 13 and, and um, so whereabouts was the first place you moved to? Uh, West Auckland. West Auckland, okay. Yeah. So we'd had a little rental on Great North Road and uh, Mount Albert. I went to Mount Albert Grammar School for six months. That was an extreme culture shock. Mm. I remember the first day I got dropped off by my mum and I went to a science class and there was this, I swear to God, it must have been like 80-year-old man <laughs> on a chalkboard like writing things out and I just felt like I went back 200 years because you had this uniform you had yeah that was just very stuffy I was like oh my god what is this place because you come from a kind of very cultural Europe mm. and South Africa was fun and old but not that behind mm. and then New Zealand this moment in New Zealand was just like what is this place yeah. and it got better but the shock was yeah <laughs> um, yeah it was definitely there and it made an impression and then we bought a little house in Massey and I went to high school there for four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've been quite lucky and I've had multiple different exposures to different thinking in schools and how they teach and so on. It was quite, mm. yeah, quite interesting. So as a teenager, what, would, what was your first job that you sort of had? Um, I did a lot of work with my dad um, because you couldn't just not. <laughs> that he comes from that mindset like if you're home and you're not doing something you're like what are we doing yeah so we had done um a couple of properties in south africa so we the house we bought in south africa we just like renovated it a little bit made it work for us mm. and our friends really loved it so they said can you do the same for us and we did that and in new zealand we bought the cheapest property we'd find which is ninety thousand dollars which sounds un real cheap, right now yeah. in Auckland yeah. <laughs> that was like 92,000 I was like it's not even a deposit these days um, and we just so we just did like put in a granny flat underneath so it's a lot of digging building walls getting it consent <laughs> mowing the lawns all the time digging a veggie garden so you can have I think these days they call it resilience to like price shock because you can just be feeding yourself yeah Okay. Um, oh, so and then the first job job, um, my dad was a sparky, so I started working with him doing switchboards, like just all the manual things that 
coming down by anyone. Mm-hmm. But it's quite soothing work because you're just planning routes of cables mm-hmm. to make them look neat and mm-hmm. functional. Yeah. What about sports and hobbies? What sort of sports and hobbies did you have as a team? Um, the biggest one is basketball. Okay. I love the sense of teamwork that was available and present there. And mm. it, it's probably the sport I've enjoyed the longest for over three decades because... Three decades, okay. Yeah. I only recently retired because at 42, it's a bit rough on the knees. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to be able to enjoy my knees for a long I time. I think so. I retired my basketball about 20 years ago, but anyway, <laughs> you've done well. Um, I just understood that I had a specific aspects of the game that could contribute in a really powerful way. Yeah. So, for example, setting screens in basketball is where you free yeah, your yeah. teammate. Mm. And I, I was just, if I set a screen, that person was set. <laughs> like, they were mm. not getting past me. And it meant that my teammate had an opportunity to do something, mm. to score or to make another pass. Or, yep. And that was very fulfilling because you could just set someone else up to succeed. Mm. And rebounding because like, I'm not athletic enough to stop a shot. Mm. And I'll give you a shot, but you're not getting a second. <laughs> no. did, you, did you follow the Croatian sort of national basketball team yeah. quite closely growing up? Um, yeah, they visited once in Auckland they did a couple of games okay. and I've got a signed basketball and part of my little memorabilia basket at home yep yeah but they were quite a young team and that I was, was the, I remember in the, in the sort of mid late 90s when they had um, I think they had Kukoc yeah Kukoc was and my Dino Raja um, yeah was he uh, Drajan Petrovic that was yeah, the big one he passed away but yeah. yeah unfortunate but yeah no they had, they had some really good good players they did I mean I got to watch um, Kukoc and Petrovic and Zagreb playing for like that um, I forget the team name right now but as a like eight year old kid and yep. it just there mm. was a grace and a finesse mm. to that way of playing that just stuck with me yeah <laughs> yeah um, it's one of the reasons jumping forward a little bit why I want to um, contribute to the council and to the community is mm. that there's that sense of teamwork which is very innate inside of a sport like basketball and yet you can take it outside of basketball and so many other avenues mm. and the other one I loved because we were in West Auckland was bodyboarding just out in the water being in nature I would spend mm. a couple of hours just paddle out and just wait there and mm. then you could feel the waves coming and going and then you could just tell which one's going to be yours and you just catch one or two waves and go home and <laughs> it was quite it's quite fun I'd go out very early on the weekends and when about four or five other people showed up, and I was like, oh, it's too busy. <laughs> Did you ever sort of go across to Australia and do some bodyboarding around no, the Gold Coast? Or... No, I've, it's all been around New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, because it's too many sharks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, cool. So that's some of the hobbies that you had sort of growing up. Yeah. And so you, your first jobs, and then how did you sort of, I guess, your adult career get started? My first job that sticks out is I got a, a service role, a sales role, a customer bar on, um, which is a sort of paint wallpaper type store. And the gentleman interviewing me was like, he could see something. I was like, I'm going to teach you how to outcompete on service. So can you, how do you educate your customer to make the best decision and not make it about price? And it really stuck with me because I, I love the idea of just giving people the tools to make great decisions and I got really good at it because like a brief example is a couple would come in 
they want to do something to the lounge and I'll just go, well, you know, describe to me your lounge, go, oh, we've got polished floors, we've got a fireplace. I'm like, if you have that, consider doing Torben suede. It's like a a textured paint and I said, here's a little sample pot. Don't put it on the wall. <laughs> put it on a piece of wood, take it around, look at it in the shadow and the light. And they would come back, get the paint, and you teach them about how to put it on properly, how to prepare. But the best part was their friend would come over and go, hey, you checked, you helped Jack and Shelley. Oh, can you do the same for us? I'm like a 19-year-old kid in a paint shop. <laughs> and there's a couple forward professional designers there. I'm like, don't you want to talk to them? <laughs> and it was just interesting when you really focused on the other person's needs and worked really hard to educate them because you had more information you could share with them. Mm. Um, and that was it stuck with me since then because I went um, I mean at about the same time we also had a family business doing air conditioning so I would go in and out of that because running a business with your father is quite tricky because <laughs> especially when you're similar minded so I would just go away for a few months do my thing he would like really need me I'd come back and we'd work it out but it was just it was a bit hit and miss um I did also do a degree in information technology, so systems yep. analysis and design, mm-hmm. with a focus on usability. So how do you have technology that people want to use, not mm-hmm. that they're forced to use, yep. that works with how they really think and act. Um, and it, So built on top of the analysis piece of understanding the customer, fulfilling their need through education so that they're empowered to make the best decision, because it's not you to tell them what to do it's from mind is how do you educate yeah. and how do you empower them and it, that's kind of always running in the back of my mind when projects or people come across yeah um, so I I think around 24 we sold the family business and I got into IT so I just took a base role because I was like they were like you don't have any experience I'm like well okay <laughs> built the business up that did really well mm. managed you know, 10 teams of two people <laughs> used to do anything from 8 to 12 jobs at a time, like running them. <laughs> okay, I, I'll i take your premise. And then I just said to a recruiter, I said, just get me into a team. I don't care what it is. And there was an amazing guy, Peter, who was a program manager at Westpac. And they were, Westpac was rolling out away from Windows NT to Windows XP. And they wanted to do it in little groups and teams. So our job was to go in there, find a champion in the team to help us communicate with the team. And I didn't know what I was doing, so I just, I went in to meet with the first manager said, who in your team is the most resistant to change? And he'd be like, Sarah. I'm like, cool. So I'd set up a coffee with Sarah and I'd have a conversation and listen to her and go, you know, this is what I need to do. Would you be open to helping me? I really want to make sure that your team goes, that this goes really smoothly for your team. And we did a few of these and Peter pulls me into his office and goes, what are you doing? I was like, you told me to. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm doing what you asked. He goes, no, but you're getting really great results. So I explain what I just shared with you. He's like, go tell the other BAs. Now, most of these gentlemen, a couple of ladies, were over 10 years my senior. I was like, I'm not doing that, Peter. <laughs> they, like, this is literally my first gig. I'm not going to tell them how to do their job. He goes, you have to share because you have a different perspective and what the feedback he was getting is like it was so easy from the other parts of the team mm. because when the team saw the most resistant person lead the change 
everybody else was like, oh my God, this is going to be easy. Mm. Like if Sarah's on board and she's leading the change. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And that's, um, these are glimpses into what kind of um, opens the perspectives of how I see the world. Yep. Is how do you do, not the least effort, but what's the most acute way of injecting energy or int- attention or something to, to get movement to get momentum or to get a change happening yeah it's one of the other things that I was drawn to the council role council role is that there's so often just repetition of what happened what we did before so I was reading a couple of articles last night um because as a new councillor you go to this local governance thing and you get previous councillors tell you how to do it I'm like that just sounds so dangerous Mm. (laughs) like where at what point do you get the fresh thinking yeah. At what point do we go, today is not what yesterday was, <laughs> and mm. tomorrow is definitely not what today is? <laughs> yeah. And how do you have the ability, how do you cultivate the constant ability to keep adapting the openness to new experiences and the openness to new perspectives? And because it's such a human battle to be resistant to change. Mm. And one of the things I observe not being here for that long is that that adaptability is something we is undernourished mm. and I'm like well how do we nourish it more and then mm. how do we lead by example of what that might be mm. um, yeah yeah so going tra- tracking back a little bit you're in you're in Auckland for a while yes. oh sorry um, and how long were you in Auckland and uh, from 93 to end of 2003 so I lived in about 10 years yeah, yeah. and I spent about almost 10 years in Wellington um, so in 10 years in Wellington as well. Yeah. Okay. Wellington was amazing because when you get there, so Auckland's very kind of keeping up with the Joneses, very mm. Jaffa type thing. And I can see why people from outside of Auckland would have those mm. um, experiences. And then arriving in Wellington was like, oh my God, the more you are your authentic self, the mm. more other people welcome you. Mm. It's celebrated. And this was a new thing for me mm. because I'd spent a couple of times I'd been a recent immigrant a recent migrant and mm. going through that cultural shift and not always being accepted or sometimes mm. welcome but it's it's always a constant thing like you mm. just I just want to fit in and contribute and people don't necessarily sense that mm. they're like oh you're new you're different and that there's like mm. a, a barrier mm. I'm like well and I've learned to just well that's them <laughs> mm. just do your thing mm. um, but Wellington was very eye-opening and so what sort of uh, roles and mostly IT, yeah, um, IT sort of related roles, yeah. yeah. And then near the end, um, with my ex-wife and I, we invested yep. in a co-working space, yep, um, this dojo. So I helped do some of the design and the layout, mm-hmm. and built some of the furniture and project managed the kind of implementation. And then she ran the community for a few months. And this is sort of months. about a decade or so ago. Yeah, I think eleven years. Yep, yeah. Um, and then we. Part of it is we wanted to run events, so I attended a startup weekend in Auckland to just observe how to run this event. Mm-hmm. Joined a team because I was like, let me just have first experience as a participant, and then mm-hmm. we ended up winning. It's like, oops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that startup is still running in the States. Mm-hmm. It's called Transcribe Me, so we take audio like this and then give you back text. Mm-hmm. And it's quite fun because one of the chaps in it was this brilliant Russian called uh, Victor. And he was using microphone arrays in the Waitakere Ranges to like voice fingerprint and identify rare birds and then to track them around the hill without having to 
Mm. Let me tag them. <laughs> mm. I was like, could you do that with a recording? He's like, yes. So we can split the voice out, chunk it down into pieces, have a neural network, like pre-transcribe it, and have a competition between the neural networks who's got the correct transcription. <laughs> it's oh, wow. quite, it was quite fun. I mean, yeah. people are doing it now, yeah. a decade later, which is, yeah. it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, so basically Wellington and then basically. Oh, so at the end of that Wellington thing, mm. um, I, um, yeah, I went through a divorce with my ex-wife mm -hmm. because it just, it wasn't working. Mm. And, um, it was quite difficult on her and I just had to go somewhere else, which is probably the hardest decision I've had mm. to make so far in leaving two who are teenagers now, but two kids behind mm. because it was like your just, kids. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been difficult. So then, uh, where did you move to after that? Um, back to Auckland for about a year mm -hmm. and then with my new partner, mm -hmm. um, one of my, jobs in Auckland they had an installation in London mm -hmm. and a couple of people had quit and I just said to, I asked the GM can you just send me because this is like it's hard work I get it mm. but that doesn't mean that we just quit <laughs> like, yeah this is a very, this is the key project for this company to mm. break into the next phase of their growth <laughs> like, mm. we can't fail it's like it's not an option so mm. please send me the difficulty we had as a couple is that we'd had our second miscarriage at that point and there was very little support or understanding of what that is mm. especially from the company mm. so when I said I need to take a little bit of time out to go and do this they were like you can't I was like whoa mm. <laughs> it's not an optional activity like mm. my partner's now going through two of these in six months Yeah, I can't not be because I was in London she mm. wasn't. I was like, I can't not be around her. <laughs> like, yeah, this is. <laughs> I'm asking you nicely because if not, yeah. I have to leave. <laughs> yeah. Like, um. But it's the the thing that was nice is that I, I could feel myself expressing my own courage and following what I knew was important. And I didn't always see that in people around me. Because a lot of people would just stick to what they knew and what was comfortable, and I just I don't know how much we can grow individually and as a community if we only stick within our comfort zones. Mm. Um, and it, there's a project we can talk about a little bit later that's coming online shortly around the daily dose of discomfort mm. and actually kind of keeping. So once my observation is once you lose touch of discomfort you lose the value of comfort <laughs> and it we're starting to understand what that is yeah um mm. so we we i think well, we have three beautiful little kids now but we had four miscarriages in about two years which was yeah i i get the reaction mm. my mindset is okay what do i need to do mm. to get clearer or deeper understanding understanding of the relationship within me mm. how do I get a deeper relationship with my partner and how do we as a couple have a deeper relationship together mm. so there's something between these three entities that needs work or our attention to grow so that we're ready to have the children present with us mm. so each one was an opportunity just to dig deeper and do more work mm. personal development type thing to just get 
to a stage where you were ready for that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it, there is absolutely the pain of loss. Mm. I just, my mind is attuned to like, what can you learn? Mm. You're going to go through this, mm. use the pain, alchemize it into something else. Like it's, it can be a fuel to grow. So how can you grow? How can you become like the human being becoming? Yeah, interesting. I like that. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah. So basically, so that's a bit about that. Yeah. What about uh, then uh, after Auckland, you... So we were, I think at that point in the Caribbean, because mm. she was managing a couple of pharmacies. I flew out there to give her support. Mm-hmm. Um, and she sort of supported both of us because her job was enough that mm. I could just focus and just like looking after me because mm-hmm. I'd had quite a tough previous 10 years I'd done quite a lot and she's like you also need to stop mm-hmm. <laughs> that was one of the things we learnt in our discussions and meditations that we both were two two type A high achievers and it wasn't functioning mm. not for not for what we wanted to be next so when we had the third miscarriage she found a miscarriage clinic in Auckland and she's like I think we should need to go back so we just did that. Mm. Just went back to Auckland, went to the miscarriage clinics, still had a fourth miscarriage. Yeah. <laughs> Which is when we met Lula, this amazing lady from Motherwell, and she was like, you two need to go find a little town, get a little house, get a little dog, <laughs> and just do a little thing. So being an analyst, I was like, what's the four sunniest places in New Zealand? Napier, Nelson, Blenheim, Tauranga. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mind the little town, but can we have good weather? <laughs> yeah. And need good weather, yeah. It helps. <laughs> so Blenheim was like a little town. It was flat. Mm. My wife picked it because she's Dutch. So it was like, let's just go there. So we went and did that. We had a little bike shop for a little bit. Had our kids. Rebuilt her old 70-year-old house. And it was just... It was just nice to just mm. to have a small life. Mm. Like, so when you moved there, was that the first time you sort of became interested in, in sort of mountain bikes and bikes and that sort of thing? No, in Wellington. Because in Wellington, yeah. you can... Like Mount Verk, um, Macca is like the furthest thing, but it's a 15-minute bike from the center of the city. Mm. And it's quite... It's interesting that a lot of the IT community is into mountain biking, and it's kind mm. of goes together. It's, yeah, I see that. I see that. <laughs> I mean, there's a local chap who kind of leads that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was when I got into it. In Marlborough, I just did it again. But it was more focused around... Um, a project I now call the bike library where yeah. we do bikes as a service because mm. what I realized selling bikes in the shop is that the model we have available to us to get a bicycle is it's a single one and for most people it's broken as in it doesn't really fulfill their needs and I mean I share the story a lot but we would sell a bike so you'd buy a bike, from bike for your kid mm-hmm. teenager $600 cool You'd, I would give you three free services. You wouldn't come back and use them. You'd come back 80 months later, the bike would be basically rigged. It'd be $800 to fix. Yeah. I'm like, Tim, it's going to cost you more than you paid for it. <laughs> but that kind of environmentalist heart in me was like, mm. we can't keep doing this. There's got to be another way. And what I realized is very few people understood that ownership was 99% maintenance and expecting everyone to be great in maintenance when they just wanted to get around. Yeah, was not in alignment with people's needs and wants. Mm. So the bike library is like, well, since I had four kids at that stage, five now, I was like, how do I have start with kids' bikes where they get a great bike, not just a cheap 
everything but a lovely bike fit for purpose mm. that we check every three months to make sure it's running well mm. and at the same time check the size so when they outgrow it just swap it mm. just swap it and then the first bike can be for the next child mm. and then you can kind of grow this mm. um, generation of kids who just always have a great a well-maintained bike which means mm. it works well so they want to use it and it's always comfortable and safe because it's always the right fit mm. or fit for purpose but, yeah yeah and it but part of it is like a, a little detail that's rarely seen is if we organize ourselves that we can reuse these bicycles mm. we're just being more effective with the resources we've put into making them mm-hmm. and you can this waste or this, like waste by design is eliminated because you're reusing a product. Yep. And it's bred a couple of other ideas that we're looking to launch, like a reusable container scheme mm-hmm. called Return to Sender, which is an Elvis song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, specifically in Queenstown, there's a brand for Queenstown people for the local community called Tahuna. And is it a brand of bike or a brand? Uh, no, no. So, pro- like skincare products or body products. Okay. Because Tahuna is the local. Yeah, it's yep. Queenstown. And so it's made by locals for locals. Mm-hmm. And it's a container scheme just in the local area. Mm-hmm. And we want to launch it here because we really believe Queenstown can be the spearhead of mm. the regeneration out of whatever we've been through the last couple of years. Mm. And we just wanted to come here and do that. Um, because there's a tight-knit community. It's quite separated, and it makes real sense to try it here. And then we want to take the model to, like, Wanaka, Cromwell, Lake Harwia, Invercargill. Like, every community, roughly high school-based, roughly, can have its own expression of it, because then the everyday items you use multiple times a day can be in reusable containers. Mm -hmm. And we can create games of looking after the environment or having a container do, like, 100 reuses or 200 or 1,000. Mm. We can measure directly, like every time you reuse a container, there's a carbon credit piece of it where you're not using plastic, not shipping plastic from around the world. And it, uh, there's hours of this, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just wanted like to come here and do that. And the last one is that uh, contrast therapy, which is fundamentally, it's been done in the Nordic countries a lot. So it's <laughs> using sauna and cold baths in alternating cycles to really get you in touch with being uncomfortable and doing it in a group setting while being guided. So you can have a daily dose of discomfort. You can get more familiar with resilience because you get to practice being in an uncomfortable situation consciously. And the bit that I'm looking forward to the most is um, what they call (coughs) gift of the geese, which is cheering each other on while we go through it. So how do we use peer pressure in a positive manner to support each other through these difficult moments mm. so that we're both better off because going through a sauna and cold bath cycle is tough and the rewards are immense mm. because your body is literally learning to regenerate by going through a heat shock and a cold shock and so you go into two extremes and going to two extremes allows you to find your middle mm. allows you to find your place of peace mm. and letting go of it's too hot letting go it's too cold like learning to let go and let go and let go really teaches you to just find peace and that's one of the other reasons we came to Queenstown because it's an alpine town yeah Mm. so how long ago did you move here then ah six months so you're very new to to the place 
Yeah. And so what makes you sort of jump in the deep end and, and want to become a counsellor? Have you sort of been involved in, in councils before in, in other places or you worked with councils? Um, or? I had one short-term role with Auckland Council doing three different projects for them. And that informed some of it. And it was mostly I've had three different people, one of them being my wife, point out that there was not enough people running mm. and that I would be a really good fit. Mm. And But the first two, I was like, okay, pay some attention because often when life shows you three things in a hurry, you kind of want to pay attention. Yes. And then when my wife was the third one, I was like, oh, God, no, okay. Well, and then I thought about I thought, wait, if we're committed to being here for the next decade at least and have, raise our children here, mm. then how can I, like pave the way for them mm. and how can I offer my leadership as a service or my way of thinking as a service to a wider community and I thought well it's here it's now they're looking for people I have a window where I can do this so mm. let's just do that mm. yeah yeah interesting okay so I mean that's it's obviously something that's just sort of you know if you if you were to go back 12 months ago you wouldn't have thought you'd be in this position really would you I knew it was coming. I knew some sort of political position was somewhere in my future. Yeah. Because I'd I'd explored that aspect for myself. And I knew that either my wife or I, one of the two of us, would, hopefully not both, (laughs) would be doing some part to play in some sphere politically. Mm. I just... And I just left it at that. I was like, I accepted that at some point in my life. I would, just like you, when you become a dad, you're going to be a granddad. (laughs) (laughs) Just part of the process. So I knew that I'd wanted that experience in my life or for my wife it was just this came up kind of stars aligned whatever you want to say I was like well I have a window let's just do it now Mm. like it's here it's now Mm. a few of the ideas for me it's being the visionary piece I don't I'm not necessarily the best person to execute them Mm. I love inviting people along going hey this is what we believe this is the dream we have Mm. You know, if you have a passion for it or you want, you wish to contribute, how do you want to add mm. to this? Mm. So it's an open invitation for people to come and give their passion mm. into something for not just themselves, but for the community mm. at large. Mm. So have you found the process so far in sort of doing a bit of campaigning and uh, getting out there, going to these different uh, meetings, going to these different uh, groups where you're talking in front of people and next week there'll be another one in Arrowtown yeah. that you'll be there. Tell us what, what how, how that's been. So it's quite... Interesting, because there's 12 positions at the council. One of them is the mayor, and so much of the energy seems to be focused on the mayoral candidate, Mm. which is, I I get it's important, and I get you have to have some definition of leadership and some definition of structure. Mm. It's just there's 11 other people, (laughs) Mm. or 11 other positions, (laughs) and I get that, okay, you you can't have the 30 people running at every discussion. I understand. That's why I love what Arrowtown and actually Arthur's point is going to be the weekend of the 24th or 25th. They're just deciding on a date as well. So really in the community. And my initial thing was I want to be available for people to come have a conversation. Mm. I wasn't ready to do that yet because I didn't quite understand Mm. what the community was like. So I spent the last month just going to a number of these events, Mm. feeling people out. And it's interesting because the most common question like five out of six times yeah, on yeah. two nights ago at the event center was like how are you going to listen mm. I'm like I don't know <laughs> I mean I, I think I know how to listen mm. so my question back to people is how do you think I can do that 
well, how do you, how would you feel you've been heard? Mm. And it's interesting because some of them just smile because mm. I think they know enough, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm comfortable with saying I don't know because it puts me in the most powerful position because I'm now the most open-minded and the most ready to learn. Yeah. And that to me is the most fascinating bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it, it's, yeah, it's, as you know, it, there's um, six candidates running and three, yes. three will get, um, get selected yeah. uh, in, your, in the Arrowtown <coughs> Kawarau ward. Um, and obviously, yeah, I've sort of interviewed, a, a, this will be a third or fourth one that I've sort of interviewed. So it's, it's quite interesting to get different perspectives, different backgrounds, um, different ways of looking at things, uh, different experiences, different eyes. Um, <laughs> If, if you were to sort of leave a bit of a, a la- lasting impression, if you were to get the role as, as yeah. councillor, what do you th- what do you th- want to see? You, is legacy important to you? Do you, like, do you like to sort of leave a legacy behind that you've achieved something if you get into a role like this? For me, it's not about legacy because I've, I've spent some time working through this. Is mm. it about money? Is it about legacy? Is it about name or is it about impact? Yeah. And for me, it's very, very simple. Mm-hmm. Empower everyone around me to be the full expression of themselves. Mm-hmm. That, and it might sound a little bit wishy-washy. It's just when I have been about around people who have been in touch with their power and who are expressing their power in a very um, balanced manner, there is such a joy and a pleasure to be around because they're alive. Mm-hmm. They're being creative. They're being expressive. I'm like... Everyone is like this. Mm. So what, for me, if legacy is a word, it would be how do we come together, this group of random strangers, really, (laughs) how do we come together and lead by example of, hey, we are better together. Mm. We can care more together. Mm. We can show by leading the count, the way we lead ourselves and lead the council we can show the community what leadership in action looks like. We can show um, responsibility, accountability. We can pull each other up when we need to. We can like um, not share the workload in the sense, but just share the work of the example, like setting the example. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I think about is the way we organize ourselves is the most ripe opportunity for innovation. Mm. Because the technology, I get it. It's amazing. I was being over a decade in technology. I get it. And it was interesting. I went to a green coffee morning presentation yesterday by Sustainability Queensland. And the engineer who's been an engineer for 20 years, Kylie, she's like, if I knew, if I could go back 20 years to start my degree, I would have done a psychology degree. Because this crisis is not about the environment. It's about our inability to adapt to change. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I have similar conclusions. <laughs> and it's, so how do you show adaptability? How do you show, how do you express that in a public manner? And mm. for me, that's what this opportunity feels like. And so how can I contribute who and what I am and what I can become to serve the community in this manner? Because mm. it feels like it's the most lacking ingredient. Mm. Okay, a couple of things. Um, yes. So, we we met last uh, Sunday at um, that the dinner yes. for Olivia Wensley, um, yes. her uh, campaign. 
So that was great to sort of catch up with you for a bit there, and, and, and then you agreed to obviously do this podcast, so that was really, really good. But uh, one thing you mentioned was, you, you do you have OCD or obsessive oh. compulsive disorder, or do you call it something else? Yeah, there is a, if it's one of my humor things, Yeah, I call it CDO. Because I don't believe that Freud, when he named the condition OCD, understood it because he put it out of alphabetical order. Yep. So for me, it's CDO because that's in alphabetical order. Mm. And to people, I tell them my chief design officer. And the, to ones that I understand will get the joke, I tell them it's compulsive disorder obsessed. Yep. And it, it, took him, it took me over a decade to understand what this was and to understand how to wield this. And I will call it a superpower because mm. it can be the opposite too mm-hmm. if it's not within your conscious command mm-hmm. so I'm going to be compulsive I'm going to be obsessive and mm. I'll be disorderly about it mm. okay mm-hmm. denying those things about me brought me a lot of pain and misery mm. okay what if I embrace them okay well how would you embrace them in a manner that can be powerful expression for yourself mm. so I went through that and I was like it felt good but incomplete Mm. I was like, okay, so how can you do this in community manner? Which is mm. what, I wouldn't call myself a community builder, except this morning I was driving my kids to work. I was like, I kind of am, because a lot mm. of the visions I have are all about community together. Mm. I was mm. like, oh, oops. Because <laughs> mm. I don't, for me, it's just, I don't think about those things. I don't, mm. like we were at an early Arrowtown presentation from the Arrowtown promotion, business promotion thing. And I asked the question then, Vicky had to go, who are you? I was like, oh, Daniel. She goes, and you are like, oh, running for council. Because I, I just, I, I want to be there. I want to make the difference. But I don't care if it's me or not. Mm. I've said to Matt, I've said to Neela, I've said to um, a couple of the other candidates I've had a chance to talk to without like 100 people around. If you get in, and if I get in or not, I'm still here to support you. Mm. I Like, outside of all this mayhem. Yeah. <laughs> Like, you are trying to do the right things. You're standing up. You're mm. putting yourself out there. I'm here to support you. Mm. I don't know what I can do, but if you need help, you just reach out. It's really good. I like that. I don't um, know else. Like, how do you show you mean it? Mm. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, heroes, mentors. So, growing up, who, who are you, people that you consider to be heroes or if you were to sort of answer that question or mentors that I, shaped I would, your... Yeah, I would say you? mentors. The first one is my grandma and my mum's mum because she was a teacher for 30 years and she really instilled in me or brought out through me the sort of insatiable appetite to learn, the curiosity. She really got me in touch with my curiosity and that's been a never-ending source of energy because when I put myself into a state of not knowing and I get curious and start wondering, the energy that comes along with that curiosity and with that wonder is limitless. So going, pushing yourself through new ideas or learning new things is easy when you have the energy behind you. Um, so she would be my first one. Um, my mum would be second because she was a living, breathing example of unconditional love mm-hmm. in my life. Like I had it firsthand, no matter what I did, how she felt about me didn't change. Um, the following took a while to get to, like two decades, but my dad, because it was persistence, perseverance, determination, just not knowing how to quit. Mm. I just, it's not in the vocabulary. Mm. <laughs> so quitting is unavailable. Mm. 
I've learned that sometimes you want to quit purposely because <laughs> mm. that's a different thing. Um, publicly, people like Steve Jobs because he had an amazing ability to articulate what people didn't know that they need or want. Mm -hmm. And more specifically, he had a wonderful product with the iPod and then they went and cannibalized it with the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And most people, most companies, I don't think would have had the courage to do that, to take their cash cow, their biggest cash cow, <laughs> that was exploding around the world and go, we're gonna do something better and different. And it turns out that the iPod is like a rounding error. <laughs> and if you look at the iPhone scale, it's like, that really inspires me, like, we're doing great. And when you know you could do better, like, pursue that. Mm. And it, uh, Just yeah. weird, I, I had this memory to sort of flash back to me today and I hadn't thought about it for a long time. It was the first iPod that I ever bought. And um, I had it for a short period of time and then it just, I don't know, it just went missing and could never <laughs> find it, never bought another one or something. I'm sure someone stole it. <laughs> anyway, yeah. iPods. Yeah. Um, um, and then there's two others from me. Yeah. Okay. Go um, for it. Yeah. Ricardo Semler is a Brazilian businessman, and he wrote the book called The Maverick, and okay. it really reframed about what's possible in an organisation when you throw all the rules out. Mm -hmm. um, locally in Auckland, there's a gentleman by the name of Ken Brickley runs a wonderful uh, fitness and food uh, app four influencers mm -hmm. and he we were kidding around one day he's like it's finished I was like what's finished it's like he went in and rescued the business he became CEO of I was like what's finished and I apologize it's like fuck it nothing is sacred like you just you have to question everything because you don't know at some point things you've been told you have to unwind and go we have to retest mm. and um, the last one is Ken Blanchard wrote an amazing book called Gung Ho and it was about spirit of the squirrel, way of the beaver, and gift of the geese. And doing worthwhile work, working together, and cheering each other on. And mm -hmm. it, it was just such a, mm -hmm. a way of, that felt like more of this. More of this between us. More of this in our community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I was, like, name a few things here. What, what sort of things sticks out to you the most when it comes to things that you, you're interested in? Do you sort of... Are you a person that sort of likes watching movies or do you like listening to music or do you like TV shows or, or something um, different? A little bit of most things. I love music because for me it's such a black art. Like I don't know how to make it. So tell me about music. What, what's your what's your sort of music that you like listening to, your favourite? Um, currently it's sort of hour-long podcasts of just... Um, like I really like African beats, like... I call it on the ground music because you're making music with the ground. Okay. So kind of drum type things. Um, okay. I love trance stuff because it puts your puts my mind into states where I can just flow and be free. Yep. Um, I used to really be into grow up in the West Auckland. You didn't really have a choice. It was like grunge. Like grunge. Yeah. <laughs> I turn yeah. middle. Mm. Um, and because of my wife, I sort of got into Dolly Parton because <laughs> that's her favourite. <laughs> Working anyway. She's obsessed. I'm like obsessed about stuff, but she's obsessed about Dolly. Um, Does she, she have OCD as, as well? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, CDO. Yeah, no, we had this joke <laughs> CDO, yesterday. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> Righty, yeah, that's, that's, we, we've uh, come into the tour the end of the podcast. It's been a yep. pleasure to hear about your story. Um, I guess I would give you an opportunity to sort of uh, 
um, discuss any sort of final thoughts, anything you wanted to sort of uh, put out there to the general public that uh, and you know why they should vote for you uh, and that sort of thing. Just a, a way to wrap up what's been a great podcast here today. Um, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate you having me on. I'm not going to ask them to vote for me. I'm going to ask them to take some time and invest in being informed mm-hmm. and do what's best from there. My only thing in the 10 years I've did business analysis and since is how do you make the best decision? Like when I'm working with a stakeholder, how do I give them the most information mm-hmm. in a clear manner so they can make the best decision? Because I'm not the decision maker. It was quite nice. Like all care, no responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I can't ask them to vote for me. If they feel like they're what, they want more of what I bring, then I'll absolutely take that mm. and uphold my end of it. Mm. I just can't ask them. I will ask them to inform and I will ask them to, like, to, do, to contribute to the community by getting informed and going and voting. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, register to vote and obviously yeah, very important, very important election for both uh, all the, the council positions and yep. also the mayor. So it's going to be very interesting to see how it all unfolds. It's been great to have a chat to you uh, about your life, about uh, where you come from, some stories in there, some, uh, you know, obviously some very, um, mess- some messaging there that is, is very important, to, I think, that people should uh, take on board. So thank you very much, Daniel. That's been great. Uh, it's been from the, uh, from the Resort Podcast, episode number 39, on Friday the 16th of September 2022 with uh, Daniel uh, Jul- 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 Thank you very much, Daniel.